We're in Acts chapter 12, page 780 in your blue Bible, or if you want to Google Acts chapter 12, we'll be here this morning. And you look at a text when you're preparing to teach and you're just trying to figure out, you know, there's many things that God can use the spirit to be able to release a message. But the message that I really felt, um, even as things began to transpire this week, was a message surrounding hope. And hope is one of those terms that societally we've tried to redeem And it's essential to the idea of the story of the people of God for Christians is that there is hope intrinsic. The problem that happens, though, is that even though you and I know that as followers of Jesus we're supposed to retain hope, it always seems that there's times of trouble that prevent us from doing so. So uh, the context of the book of Acts, the book that we're studying, it's from the New Testament. This is after Jesus has died and resurrected, and this is the very beginning of the church. And again, a man named Luke wrote it. Luke was also the author of one of the Gospels. And what's interesting that we see, and we've called this series Behind the Scenes, is because you would think if you were trying to put forth a picture of what the church looks like, you'd want to paint it as rosy as possible to encourage people to join in the fray. But it's very interesting is that we move into Acts chapter 12. We're in the story of the early church, and even though you think everything's going well, it's not. And that's where we're at this morning. So Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, I'd like to read that if you have it, follow along in your Bible. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And when he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also, moving to verse 4, after arresting him. He put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. And Herod intended to bring him out for a public trial after the Passover. The church had experienced bouts of persecution before. You know, a few uh, weeks ago, I, I think it was this year, we talked about Stephen, who was one of the first Christian martyrs. Here to begin Acts chapter 12, there, here, there's another death, and this is the death of James. And James was one of the apostles. If you remember, James had a brother named John. It was very interesting is that James and John's mother approached Jesus and just said, hey, um, make sure that my sons are on your right and your left in the kingdom. And Jesus said, that's a pretty big request. Are you sure you're down with this? And she goes, I am certain of it. It's very interesting is that we see is that the very first apostle to die is James and the last is John. Pretty good for John. But if you're James, you're like, what the heck? I should flip this around. It's a tough time, not just for James, because, you know, he dies, but also for the rest of the church. And the reason that this is significant is that there was persecution that had happened before this. But if you'll note that this persecution didn't take place by the Jewish religious leaders, but this this persecution was taking place by the government, a man named Herod. Now, if you have, you know, some familiarity with the New Testament, that name Herod sounds familiar, right? You're like, wait, I remember this guy. Wasn't he the one that killed all the babies in the time of Jesus? That guy's lived for a long time. Um, right Herod, familial name, different Herod. That was Herod the Great. This was a different Herod, his grandson, Herod Agrippa I. And I um, have, we know what he looked like, and it's just this thing is whenever I read Agrippa, I think Grippo's the Cincinnati potato chip. So this, I spent way too much time Photoshopping this just for my own amusement. It was dumb. Anyone? Walk with me. 
But here's the deal is that you can see in this is that Agrippa for some reason saw Christianity as a threat to his rule. Um, Agrippa had been placed in command by the emperor Caligula, so they were close friends. So I say all this just to make sure as we look at this that these were real historical figures that lived. We know a lot about it to the extent that he actually had a bust made after him, right? So we even have an idea of maybe what he looked like. So this is an actual leader, and he killed James, and the Jews were so enthused that he was on their side. He's like, well, I'll just kill another one. Who's the biggest dog? Peter, let's throw him in jail. And we can see in this text what's setting up right here is that Peter is on a track to not, he wasn't just arrested, but his fate is determined to be the same as that of his fellow apostle, James. Is that Herod's plan is to kill him. Now, when we go through the Bible, you'll read the Bible and you're like, okay, it's this collection of stories, but understand that the Bible was also written to an audience, and specifically Luke is writing to the audience of the very first church here. So these are in the years right following Jesus. There's all these arguments about when the book of Luke's was written. This is what biblical scholars do to entertain themselves. I am of the opinion, like many scholars are, that this book was written in the 60s. And there's a reason behind that is because the most seminal moment in the life of even the early church and the Jews was 70 AD when Jerusalem was captured and destroyed. And the book of Acts and even Luke mentions this not at all. So it was such a major event that would have been listed if it happened. And that's why a lot of scholars, myself included, not that I'm a scholar, but I play one on TV. The reason I hold to the 60s is that we don't see Jerusalem being mentioned. And this is key because in the 60s, it coincided with a larger movement of church of persecution that took place under the reign of Emperor Nero. And if we can recall back to maybe our our Greco-Roman history, remember Nero, right? Like there's the the story about him fiddling as Rome burned. We don't know that that happened, but we do know at some point that he unleashed a wave of persecution on the early church that they had never seen before. Actually, on Facebook this week, it was very interesting. I have an acquaintance who's over in Rome, and they're taking pictures of the Colosseum, and they're talking about how beautiful and majestic it is. And I'm like, it's crazy because 2,000 years ago, it might have been beautiful and majestic, but people cheered as Christians were killed before their very eyes. So what Luke is doing here in telling the story of James and Peter is trying to send a message to the early church because in the same way as a Roman governmental leader killed James and arrested Peter, similarly, they were either in the wave or very close to the idea that the Roman emperor was going to start persecuting. This was going to change everything. Friends, when we talk about hope, I really believe that reality extinguishes hope. So that when we try to hope, sometimes we view how things are and it douses with water the flame that burns our hope. It makes it difficult for us to understand how anything positive could happen to that. And if you imagine them, Peter, we have to get into the psyche of this, right? It's not just we read like James was killed by the sword. This was somebody that Peter knew intensely, right? This was a close friend and he was killed. And as Peter sat in chains, he knew that his life was going to end the very same way. And the message that Luke is trying to tell to Christians is just say, look, this has happened before And you might think, though, that that reality then is a little too stark. It's a little too behind the scenes, a little too realistic. But it's something that we need to recognize is sometimes reality has the potential to douse our hope. The scriptures, however, friends, are filled with messages of hope. 
And that's what we need. So I don't know if you're a right in the fringe of your Bible person. If it's a blue Bible, don't write in it. It's not your Bible. Unless you need one, take it with you. But even if you make notes on a ledger on your iPhone, some of these things maybe you can attach to in these times of hopelessness to be able to remind you that God wants you to understand is that reality might extinguish hope, but it still exists. Psalm 3, 5 It makes a brief statement about our existence. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. Last night, you didn't have to worry about dying in your sleep. If you do, then, you know, okay, maybe that's a rough thing. We'll, We'll talk about it. But nobody usually worries about that. You go to sleep every night and you don't think like, oh, if I don't wake up, I'll be dead. Why? Because God does that for you. He sustains you. And similarly, how we trust and have hope in him for when we sleep, we need to have trust in him. Hope in him when things go awry. Will you read with me verses 5 through 10 of Acts chapter 12? Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. And that night, before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, two chains, and sentries to guard at the entrance. Suddenly, it's three chains. How many chains does he have? The rapper, anyone? Is this not my clientele? There are two, right? I had a moment there. I was like, it's two, not three, right? Two chains. Different, he was not in the New Testament. He was not part of this crew keeping it. It was actual, literal chains, Garrett. What's up? Man, I'm distracted. Verse seven, suddenly... An angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains, too, fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. And when they had walked the length of the street, suddenly the angel left him. Okay, so you see, you know, I note the chains because this is important because you're seeing that Peter is just really in prison. And you're asking yourself, like, why are they that deliberate? But recognize that Herod Agrippa, he's like, look, I've seen this scene before. Because earlier in Acts chapter 5, we see that when the apostles were in prison before, they were in the public jail. But during the night, an angel opened the doors of jail and brought them out. Now, did Herod Agrippa believe that this is what transpired? Probably not. Which is why he's like, I will make every effort to make sure that there's no way that Peter is jailbreaking again. So not only does he have him bound in chains, he has guards to the right of the left of him. And then it's an entire complex featuring additional guards and large gates that would not be able to be opened by a singular individual just to make sure that this guy did not escape. Herod was very determined to kill this dude. And he wanted to make sure that he saw him die. So the church knows this. And then what is the response of the church during this time? Did they call their Roman congressman? Did they make a mean tweet on social media? Did they start a petition to say, free Peter? They did not. Why? Because as we look at the church at this point, it was a countercultural movement that was virtually powerless. So what we kind of see now in our country today is like, look, I have a voice. I have the means to show outrage. I can project that publicly and maybe 
And that changed, but at this point, this church had absolutely no power. The only power that they had was through prayer, was through approaching the God of the universe in hopes that he was greater than Herod Agrippa. So we see that the church had gathered and they were praying intently for this. And this is what happens. God answers their prayer. And it's very deft how this all happens, right? This angel is just like, okay, come on, Peter, let's go. And it's just like chains fall off. He's walking through. It seems so surreal that Peter himself thinks he might be hallucinating. He, you know, maybe he's like, I'm dying tomorrow. Maybe this is my last vision the Lord is giving me. He's showing me I'll be free. And then I'll, you know, then someday I'll be free in heaven. Maybe he's going through all this. But it's like as everything happens, as guards are gone, as doors are open, he gets to the outside and he's like, oh crap, it, it happened. I'm free. God delivered me. Amazing. This might, you know, sometimes you read too much in the scripture. I love this, is that was Peter actually praying for his liberation? We don't know. But who was during this time? The church was praying for this. And he was delivered. And friends, I will tell you that a lesson to be learned here is that deliverance, deliverance confirms hope. What you and I are prone to do is to forget those moments of deliverance in our lives. We focus in on the negative. We focus in on the opportunities where we weren't delivered, where God did not answer our prayer, and we fixate on that while ignoring those moments that God actually came through for us. Why? I think it's just because the visceral feeling of powerlessness, right? Of hopelessness. When you do not believe that you will actually be heard by your God and that your prayer will be answered. Just a couple weeks ago, I had a really bad week. Like it felt like everything was just dousing my hope. And in the midst of it, you know, and I'm a pretty hopeful guy. I'm kind of optimistic by default. And there was this point where I was just like, this just sucks. And, you know, I just was like, I'm taking a nap, you know, because I'm just going to do that because that was my response, right? I was just like, I'm going to forget about it. But it was very interesting. As I went through that week, I just had to have hard conversation after hard conversation, mediating arguments between people who couldn't see eye to eye. And then it was funny because by the, the Monday of the next week, it was like the clouds had parted and all those problems had been absolved. And you know what's interesting is I don't remember that Monday as much as I remember the entirety of the week, right? Because in the past few days, some people have been like, well, how are you doing? And I was like, well, I had a crap week two weeks ago. I'm still fixated on that. What we need to do is remind ourselves, and maybe this is who you are. If you journal, if you just leave yourself a note, you need to take those moments of deliverance and, 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 and make sure that you note it in your life because you will soon forget that that happens. So it's not that God hasn't delivered you. It's that generally we humans are prone to forget those moments and fixate on the times that it didn't happen. Okay, so I think it's critical that we see that. Psalm chapter 147, verse 11 says that the Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. Ultimately, the Lord God wants to deliver you. And again, maybe it's not in the specific situation that you're experiencing, but overall, friends, the God in who we hope will deliver all of us. That is the hope of glory. That is the hope in Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us. So you might fixate on the vignettes, but look at the broader picture. 
your God wants to deliver you. He delivered Peter. Verses 12 through 17 of Acts chapter 12. When this had dawned on Peter, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was called Mark. Parenthetically, this is John Mark. This is the one who wrote the second of the Gospels, the Gospel of Mark. So they, the church are gathered at his mother's house, okay? This is where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer door of the entrance, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to the door. And when she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without even opening the door. And exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. And when she kept insisting that it was so, they said, well, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. And Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and describe how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the brothers about this, he said. And then they left for another place. Can I rewind this? Because wait, wait, James is dead. Does he not know that James is dead? Actually, no. This is the first time that this other James is mentioned. The first James dies. This James is very interesting. This James was the brother of Jesus. And if you read back in the Gospels, Jesus' brothers and sisters had actually rejected him. And now this James, who writes the book of James in the New Testament, becomes one of the key leaders in the church. Friends, if your brother, your sibling, think they're God, you know, and you come around and say, he's right, then there's something about that. Like, for me, that's the biggest miracle in the Bible. And now James is there leading the church and just saying, look, this is what we need to do. We need to pray to Jesus, who happened to be my brother, to make sure that, he is, that Peter is delivered, right? So there's this movement that's happening. You know, they're in a house. You don't want to fixate that too much, but it's just very interesting as we think of these massive houses of worship that exist. The very first church, they didn't have buildings. They met in people's houses, and that's where they gathered, right? And it just shows how tight-knit those communities were in those areas. So they are all gathering, and they're praying, Jesus, Lord, God, free Peter, release him. And then there's the proverbial knock at the door. And they're so into their prayer. They're just like, you know, it says there's a servant which talks about this whole tension of slavery in the New Testament. And we'll see, it it arrives at this point that's released. But then the beautiful thing about that is it doesn't matter if you're the person who owns the house or the servant, you were all part of the community. They're just like, Rhoda, you you go get the door. We are busy praying for deliverance and release. And she goes. And I love the description of that. Peter's like, it's me, open up. And she's like, I know that voice. Like, I don't know what, did he have a weird Galilean accent? You know, did he just look like the fish sticks guy on the thing? And he just had, he's a Boston accent. Like, open up the da. It's me, Peter. Anyone? Kel? Nope, not working for you? Great. That's my view. Either way, she recognizes that that's Peter. Goes back to and says, guys, Jesus answered our prayers. Peter's at the door. And they're like, leave us alone. We're praying. And I love this too, is then after that, she's like, I'm serious, he's at the door. And you gotta love Rhoda here because she's just like, I could have opened the door and let him in, but no. Like, you just wait. I wanna make sure that they know. But finally, they're just like, you're sure? You're sure you're her peer? Well, it's probably his ghost. I love that reaction. Because here's the church praying for God to move miraculously. And in their eyes, it's more possible that Peter's ghost was knocking at the door, then God actually answered their prayers. So, as you all were praying earlier, pagans, I'm going to blame you for not believing that God answers prayers. 
But understand this is that even though we laugh at the church for doing it, how often we do it. There was always the old illustration because I'm a preacher, you know, and I, I had to, you know, and I'm in my 40s. So this was like I learned to preach before the digital world. So you would get all these old stories and you would just use them ad nauseum. There's always the old preacher story where you're like, do you really have faith? Because if you have faith, you know, you need to believe it. And there's this old country town where there was a. Uh, you know, like a drought, a severe drought, and the church said, let's gather for rain, and they all laughed at the farmer who brought his umbrella, and he's like, but if you don't have faith that it will rain, why are you praying at all? And it's like, booyah, this is your lesson. Bring the umbrella to the prayer meeting when you're praying for rain, right? It's kind of like that story here, where it's like, if you're praying for Peter to be released, and you hear a knock at the door, that's your sign, right? This is what God is doing through all of this. I love this. So finally, they're like, well, we might as well check the door because, you know, if it was like Casper, he would just move through the door. But for some reason, he's knocking. They go answer it. I was like, it's Peter. And he's like, shh. I love that. Hush now. I've got a story to tell. I love it. So they tiptoe back into the house. And Peter's like, let me tell you a story about what just happened to me. It's crazy. I love it because he's like, everybody gather around. I'll tell a story. And then he's like, and see you later. Boom, he's gone. (laughs) I'm sorry, Dylan. It is the Jurassic Park. Like, I just always think, he left us. He left us. Anyone? That's a dated reference. But uh, somebody here is like, that reference was for you. And I created it for you. Um. Why did he leave? I do believe that even Peter was like, let's see how this works. Because they're like, now they're like, did this really happen? Like, you saw Peter, right? Like, he just hushed us. You, you were there when that happened. And it did happen. Friends, I really think that humanity rejects hope. Our flesh rejects the idea of hope. We want to put it aside. It is not logical that something unbelievable could actually happen. And hence, maybe that's why we pray for it, but don't expect it to come to fruition. We reject hope. Again, as much as I love to make myself an optimist, I am a pessimist, and I believe that's an aspect of our humanity. I believe that we are creatures of doubt naturally, and therefore for us to be able to wean ourselves away from doubt toward hope, it is a discipline. It is a process. So understand that you will reject hope, but what God is trying to do with you is to show you how you need to be creatures of hope. In the writer's description of what faith is from Hebrews chapter 11, before telling of all the great people who lived by faith and had great hope, we read that faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. It's a nice little memory verse, but in 40 plus years of life, I still find that one of the hardest things to apply to my life. Because by just natural inclination, I tend to doubt. I'm sure you tend to doubt. I think our very flesh rejects hope. But what God is telling you all day is just keep believing. Have hope. Now, I could start here, wrap, stop here, wrap it up. It'd be great. But we cannot stop because one of the greatest stories in the New Testament happens right here. It's stapled on to the end of it. So it's in the Bible. 
we got to roll with it. Acts chapter 12, verses 18 to 23. Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there for a while. And he had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon, which were up the coast a little bit too. Caesarea is a coastal seaport. We talked about that a few weeks ago. It was a very big Roman seaport. That they now joined together and sought an audience with Herod. And having secured the support of Blastus, Blastus has nothing to do with this story, but I'm just telling you someday, if you have the chance to name a child Blastus, just roll with it. He was a trusted personal servant of the king. They asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. Verse 21. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robe, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. And they shouted, this is the voice of a god and not of a man. And immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. Now, Good biblical teaching right there. That's not Old Testament wrath, God. That's like New Testament. I'm delivering people from prison and I'm giving them worms. Get some good working here. Let's pull this apart. So the first thing is, is Herod does his investigation. He's just like, look, Peter was in prison. I know they got out before. I invested heavily in keeping the man in prison and you lost him. And they're just like, you know, could they remember what happened? Who knows? Did... You know, were they able to say, I swear it was this angel? Like, it was crazy. Regardless, Herod's just like, no, that's cool. Boom, you're dead. So he kills all of these people, which just shows that he denies everything that actually happens. He thinks that it's their fault that Peter was able to escape. Well, as much as he's dealing with that, there's a problem toward the coast. So he heads over towards the coast. Blastus is there. He's negotiating peace. He's like, look, I am the master king peacemaker. I am Agrippa, king of potato chips, and I shall serve you well. And he makes it happen. And everybody's like, Agrippa. Oh, Grandpa, they're loving this guy. So the next day, he comes out. Now, what's funny is Kelly and I were in Israel on a rainy day in Caesarea, and I got to stand at the place where this happened. And I'm just like, you know, as some people stand victorious in Philadelphia on the top of the steps of the art museum where Rocky stood, I was just like, yes. Because it was this point that Herod walked out in front of the people, and they were just like, that's a god. He's a god. And how it happened, we don't know. Herod's just like, yep. And God's like, nope. And I love this. It's like God strikes him down. Oh, picture, yeah. Look, I, don't, I just wanted to find some good artwork of this. This is old stuff. You don't see, you know, any of the worms rising. But it's like he struck him down and then got words at worms and then he died. So it's not just that, you know, he died and then worms ate him. And I know this might be graphic, but just stick with me. It's the idea that, you know, and some of you, I brought no pictures of tapeworms because I find them vile and crazy. I don't want to think of the idea of a worm growing inside of me. But this is worms, plural, worms eat him alive. And he did. And by the way, this coincides with the timeline. Everybody's like, yeah, Herod died in Caesarea in, in the 40s after Jesus lived, right? So it happened. This description of worms, it's funny, Josephus, the Jewish guy, talks, uh, the Jewish historian talks about this. We do have this idea of what, what happened in the story. It's very interesting, though. You're just like, do I really need to know that this king got eaten by worms? You might not feel that you need to know it. But the readers of Acts chapter 12 the first readers of this book to whom Luke was writing needed to read this. Why? 
Because right about the time that they're reading this, there's another king, a Roman king, Nero, who thought he was a god. And he started such violent persecution of the church that we still know about it 2,000 years later. And they were getting ready to go through this. And why Luke says this is Luke just saying, you know, hey, uh, you never know, worms could come and get him. And eventually Nero dies and his corpse is consumed by worms. I don't know. But I think there's a subtle lesson here that Luke wants to tell the church that's reading this is just say, look, there was a tyrant king who thought he's a god. He sat on the throne, tried it out, and God kicked him off because that's his throne. There is one God, is the Lord God Almighty. And there will be many posers that come in to try to take his throne. And they might have their day. But at every point, power submits to hope. No matter who you are, no matter what successes you might have in the short term, eventually in the end, Luke wants to say this, the Lord wants to teach us to the church. He wants to teach it to you and I that power submits to hope. You might not see it, but it's going to happen. In the end, Jesus wins. And that's why I held out Acts chapter 12. The very conclusion of the story, verse 24, is after all of this, James the apostle dies. Peter makes an escape. The king ends up eaten up by worms. The word of God continued to spread and flourish And you know what's crazy about this story too? Peter escaped death at this point, but we know, according to church tradition, that eventually it caught up with him and he is killed for his faith. And you're like, what the heck? And I always think about that moment of Peter's life, right? He's sitting in prison once again. He's like been here before. And maybe he's now is praying that maybe God, hey, you did that before, the thing where you freed me. Is that gonna happen? And then he awakes in the morning. The God who sustained him during the night wokes him up and he understands that he is going to his death. And how is he reacting? In that moment, did Peter lose his hope? Or does it sustain him? Does it continue him on through the journey? Brothers and sisters, this is what the scriptures do for us. It's through these stories of the people who lived before, it illuminates the life that we live today. Many of us are in times of struggle. Maybe you're not in a virtual, an actual prison, but maybe you feel like you're virtually living in prison in chains. Maybe there's something going on in your life, and you might be like, well, compared to where Peter was, true death, maybe it's not that rape, but for you, it is that you are on the verge of captivity and you feel as if everything is coming in on you. That time is difficult. But what the word of God teaches us and affirms for us over and over and over again is that you and I must remain hopeful. Friends, don't lose hope. Susan, don't lose hope. Because what the Lord God is doing, we do not know. And that's the difficulty as we pray to him, correct? Because we're like, Lord, release my chains, bring me into deliverance, coming out to this so that I can give you glory and honor and praise. And sometimes the chains are freed and sometimes we are still in bondage. But throughout, the Lord God is still more powerful than the most powerful entities in the world. And at some point, justice will occur 
and we will know and praise the God who deliver us. Until then, don't lose hope. It's the message for you. It's the message for me. Friends, it's the message of the good news of Jesus. We've said this a lot before, and this is what the New Testament teaches us, is that it's good news for eternity, right? You're like, praise Jesus. Someday I'll be in heaven. I won't have to worry about all this, but right now I'm going through hell. Jesus knows that, and he sees that in your life, and he cares about that too. He bore that burden on the cross. Your pain, your sorrow, your strife, he took that to the cross and was crucified for that so that at some point we will see the deliverance. That's when hope comes to fruition. What's the beautiful song? It is well with my soul. And then Lord haste the day when my faith, my hope becomes sight. But until then, friends, our flesh is gonna rebel. We're gonna struggle. Don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. What you're going through right now pales in comparison to the deliverance that the Lord God is going to bring you. So what do we do, brothers and sisters? We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen, all of this, all of this, it's temporary. But what is unseen is eternal. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this hour of worship that we have been able to have together, where we've been able to lift hands in praise and rejoice in you, and how we've cowered low and shed tears and grieved before you. And Father, our joy is made complete knowing that you are the God of both. That you know that we are enduring light and momentary troubles, but they feel like they're eternal God. Remind us that they are not. Remind us that all that we are experiencing here is a prelude to what you have prepared for us. A place, a place where there will be no tears, there will be no more injustice, Father. There will be no more power used poorly. But that we will look to the throne and see you high, lifted up, transforming our very eternity. God, we long for that day, but until that time, our prayer is that we don't lose hope. You know us, God. We're prone to doubt. We're prone to give up. Allow your spirit, your glorious spirit to move in us, to allow us to see the hope of glory. In all of this, in the good and the bad, we give you praise forever. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.